Vedesu yash nesu tapashu chayava de nesu yat punyapalam pratistam. At yeti yat sarvamidam vidva yogi param stanam upaiti chadyam. A person who accepts the path of devotional service is not bereft of the results derived from studying the Vedas, performing sacrifices, undergoing austerities, giving charity, or pursuing philosophical and fruitive activities. Simply by performing devotional service, he attains all these, and at the end he reaches the supreme eternal abode. I was born in the darkness of ignorance, but my spiritual master has opened my eyes with the torchlight of knowledge. I offer my most respectful obeisances unto him. Just to go back and start with text 20 and kind of explain a little bit of what's being uh, put forth here at the end of this eighth chapter. Yet there is another end manifest nature. Now, if you remember from the verses prior to this, Krishna explains that the day of Brahma comes and the whole creation, the material creation comes forth and mankind gets to play. And then he winds it up. At the end of Brahma's day, there's a devastation. It's a partial devastation. And this goes on day in and day out of Lord Brahma. The, the, the expanse of time involved in Brahma's one day is beyond our practical comprehension as far as a lifespan. (coughs) We're talking eight billion years is Brahma's day. Brahma lives 365 days in a year and he lives for 100 years. And when Brahma dies, the engineer of the universe, that supremely pious living entity who the Lord invests with the power to create a, a, a universe. When he dies, then that universe is wound up. Prior to this 20th text, Krishna has been talking about that partial devastation that happens at the end of Brahma's one day, which is four billion years, and then he has, he has night, and he rests for a long time, the same duration. Does he have a successor? No, there's no one within a material universe. Lord Brahma is the highest. Lord Brahma is in charge of the mode of passion. Of course, God himself in another manifestation mm-hmm. as Vishnu mm-hmm. is in charge of the mode of ignorance. I mean, the mode of goodness. And Shiva is in charge of the mode of ignorance. So these primordial uh, demigods, Vishnu, Brahma, and Shiva are in charge of the modes of material nature, then subordinate to them are administrative demigods. Mm-hmm. So there's going to be a power struggle or a power clash. No clash, no clash with the demigods because they're all serving Krishna perfectly. They're all in the same administration. There's no other administration within a universe okay. except for the Lord's administration. Now there are rebellious souls mm-hmm. and they also attain a lot of mystic power by performing austerities and, and whatever, they, you know, whatever they can do. They also have knowledge of how this material world works and how to become very powerful in this world, how to receive benedictions. 
but they have no respect for the Supreme Lord. Just like if we look at the modern society today, you have governments around the world that don't care about the welfare of mankind. They simply want to exploit the common worker. They simply want to exploit the resources of this world. They have no interest in God. They just want to sell their bombs to other countries and, and create wars and profit from those wars. They're not interested in the well-being of the inhabitants of this planet. That mentality is a demoniac mentality. They simply want to take, take, and take. There's no give back. The perfect servitors of the Lord who administrate the universe, that's all they want to do is give back. They're only looking out for the, out for the well-being of society, for the upliftment of the people that are in this material world. Those are demigods. So there are clashes, yes, but those clashes are not in the Lord's administration. They are coming from the other side. Those people that have no interest in, in, in the upliftment of, of uh, the individual souls to a spiritual consciousness and simply want to exploit. And we can see today especially that kind of exploitation. We live in a very, very exploitive world at this time. Yes, ma'am. Can you say a quick thing? When you were saying that, I just remembered about Haranyaksha, who was a demon, and his activity was to pump oil out of the earth. That's one of the things they do, yes, most assuredly. <laughs> no, Exxon. Well, he was bigger than, than all those combined. Yeah. <laughs> so this verse, verse 20, Krishna's talking about an unmanifested nature which is beyond the temporal, the temporary partial annihilation which from our perspective is an unmanifest nature. In other words, when the when there is Brahma's evening, Brahma's night, when he takes rest, there's a devastation of the worlds, the you know, except his world and the other. Very there's anyway, we won't get into all the technical details of the universe right now, but basically there's divisions of planetary systems. There's planetary systems that do not that are not devastated at the end of Brahma's day, particularly Brahma's planet and uh, the Vaikuntha planet within the material universe where Vishnu stayed. This is all technical, esoteric. I'm not going to burden you with that. But this verse, in this verse, what Krishna is talking about is another unmanifest nature. Not the fact that we are not manifest at the end of Brahma's day. He's talking about those that place where there is no creation and annihilation. In the material world, there's always creation and annihilation. Whether it be individually or collectively, this goes on perpetually within the material world. Our body is created, it grows, it matures, it produces some byproduct, it dwindles, and it dies. All the different bodies in on the material plane go through these six changes. Birth, growth, maturity, reproduction, 
dwindling and dying. The universe also goes through these changes. In this verse, Krishna is talking about that spiritual realm that has no changes, that does not go through this manifestation and destruction that we experience in this world. Yet there is another unmanifest, another unmanifest. Before this, he was talking about the unmanifest at the end of the day, when everybody, when, when there's a partial devastation. Now he says there's another unmanifest, which is beyond everything that we experience here, which is eternal and transcendental to the manifested and unmanifested matter. It's transcendental. It's beyond that. Now we learn from the Vedas that that transcendental realm, that unmanifested nature, and what Krishna is referring to is manifested in matter. This place is totally spiritual. Eternal atmosphere, the great sages and all the Vedic literatures point out is three-quarters of the total manifestation of the Lord's energies. This is one quarter, this material manifestation, which has billions upon billions of universes. Imagine, billions of billions upon universes, material universes, of which we are in one universe. And in this one universe, which is like an eggshell, and we cannot perceive anything beyond the universe. So everything that we see in the night sky, all this is, is, is within one universe. That's, our, that's what we see in, the, in our experience. And there's unlimited universes in the material atmosphere. That material atmosphere is one quarter of the potency of the Supreme Lord, His material energies. Earth, water, fire, air, ether, mind, intelligence, false ego. These are my separate, this is my separated material energy. That energy, which is manifest and unmanifest, that energy is one quarter of the Lord's total potencies, unlimited universes. And in each universe, unlimited manifestation. The Vedas are so specific. And that's, that's a real uh, amazing thing is because this literature, because this knowledge is coming from the Supreme Lord himself in pure disciplic succession, it has no speculation in it. All the details, how long is a universe? How wide is a universe? What is the shell of the universe comprised of? Within the universe, how are the planetary systems situated? How are the different living entities within the universe who come in 8,400,000 different species of life? All the detailed knowledge of the material and spiritual atmosphere is given in the Vedas. In Bhagavad Gita, we're, getting, we're given a little summary. We're, we're, our, our palate is a little wet from the knowledge that Krishna gives us. But the full entire knowledge, which is in and of itself, you can't really reach an end of the knowledge, but the knowledge of the material world is there. And all this is there. All the details of how the material universes are, are situated 
is given. And it's given in summary form in Srimad Bhagavatam in the second canto. And those that have read Srimad Bhagavatam, second canto, if that's the summary, wow. <laughs> and then there's so many other books that give even more detailed knowledge. It is a supreme it is it is supreme and never annihilated. When all in this world is annihilated, that part remains as it is. So Krishna is saying, my spiritual abode, it's never changed. It never goes through these changes that we see within the material atmosphere. That's that with the, which the Vedantists describe as unmanifest and infallible, that which is known as the supreme destination, that place from which, having attained it, one never returns, that is my supreme abode. So if you can wind up material activities, free yourself from material desire, which gives you another body repeatedly, you can go to this abode. This abode, no annihilation, no birth, no growth, no maturity, no offspring, no dwindling, no death, eternal life. From our perspective, life on the heavenly planets, that's eternal. Krishna's talking beyond the heavenly planet that's in this universe. Text 22. The Supreme Personality of, the Supreme Personality of Godhead who is greater than all is attainable by unalloyed devotion. Although he is present in his abode, he is all-pervading and everything is situated within him. What Krishna is explaining to Arjuna here is although the Supreme Lord lives in that what we would consider unmanifest nature, unmanifest material, I mean, in that spiritual nature, although the Supreme Lord's situated there, he's in full cognizance of everything that's happening here. Because naturally, in this chapter, we've been particularly talking about the time of death. What happens at the time of death? At the beginning of the chapter, that was one of the questions that Arjuna put forth. He wanted to know from the last chapter, what are the, what, what's the nature of these things? And what happens at the time of death? What's the destination of one at the time of death? So now coming to the end of this chapter, Krishna's, Krishna's fully explaining exactly the situation at the time of death. But naturally, if one is situated in an atmosphere which is entirely separated from that spiritual atmosphere that Krishna is talking about, then naturally one would inquire, and Krishna is actually anticipating Arjuna's inquiry here, is he not? Because you'd inquire, well how, if God is up in that atmosphere, how's he know about me here? How, he, how can he make a determination as to my destination at death? Krishna makes it clear. Although he resides there, he's fully knowledgeable of all his diverse energies. And in that knowledge, because those energies are a manifestation of his very self, he's in full knowledge of them. Crude analogy. Although we're located in a body, we know when we stub our toe. Yes? Although we're situated in our heart, we're here and, and we're giving consciousness to this body, we know the body is not ours, is not ourself. If I cut off the arm, I go on. The hand, this, this is gone. 
but there's no difference to me. I'm the same. So I'm dwelling within this material body. But I'm conscious of the body. My consciousness pervades this whole body. Similarly, in a crude example, the Lord's consciousness pervades his entire manifestation of energy. It pervades all the material universes. He's conscious and aware of everything. Just as we are conscious and aware, even though the toe's down here at the end of the leg, when we hit it against something, we know what's going on. We feel. We're aware. He's also aware. That's what he's explaining here in the 22nd text. O best of the bards, I shall now explain to you the different times at which, passing away from this world, the yogi does or does not come back. So one would question, well, why is Krishna explaining to Arjuna, who's already admitted he's not a yogi, hasn't he? He said, I'm no yogi. I can't do this yoga stuff you're talking about. I can't control my mind. I'm a warrior. Why is Krishna explaining this to Arjuna? It's for our benefit. Because there is, there, there is a class of transcendentalists who are yogis, who endeavor to purify their existence. Arjuna basically is a sounding board for this basic course in spiritual knowledge. So Krishna is addressing all classes of men through Bhagavad Gita using Arjuna as the recipient of the knowledge. And why? Well, Krishna explains that earlier in the fourth chapter. Wherever and whenever there is a decline of religious practice and the predominance of religion, at that time I descend myself and reinstate the principles of religion. So the principles of religion that Krishna is reinstating here are not just for Arjuna. They're for everyone. So Arjuna has a particular circumstance and his circumstance, he's not a yogi. But still, the instruction is given. Yada, yada, hi dharma shya. Wherever and whenever there's a decline of religious, at that time I descend and I instruct. And I, he's instructing his dear most friend, but he's instructing for everyone's benefit. This verse, Krishna's, Krishna is, is saying, well, this is how the yogi leaves. Now, in preparing for the class this evening and reading the commentaries of Vishwanath Chakravarti and uh, Baladev Vidyabhushan and then reading Prabhupada's purport and understanding how he'd incorporated those, this particular text, 24, talking about the, the proper way that the yogi leaves specifically details those yogis who are aspiring to Brahman. Specific, it's specifically dealing with that. The next text, text 25, talking about those people who actually leave the body not in the most ideal yogic circumstance. Now the ideal circumstance where one attains Brahman, and we know we've talked endlessly on Brahman. Brahman is Krishna's spiritual potency, transcendental potency, but it, it's, it's not that place of his internal divine, divine Leela. Those who know the Supreme Brahman attain the Supreme by passing away from the world during the influence of the fiery God in the light at an auspicious moment of the day 
during the fortnight of the waxing mood and during the six months when the sun travels in the north. These are perfected yogis who desire to attain Brahman. The next verse, the Acharyas have explained, refers to the those people that follow the Vedas, the Karmakanda section of the Vedas, for elevation to the higher planetary systems within the material world. Not for elevation spiritually, but for elevation materially to a nicer body, longer life, more facility for enjoyment. The mystic who passes away, and here again, the term is used here, mystic. They're also mystics. They take advantage of Vedic instruction. So they're mystic. They, they're above. These verses are not dealing with the common fruitive worker who simply lives in this world devoid of any spiritual knowledge. This is, they are not being addressed here. Does that make sense? Those people that simply eat, drink, be merry, do whatever you like in the world, and when death comes, you die, and whatever comes your way, wheel of fortune, you just spin the wheel, let's see where you end up. No, this is not talking about these. In these verses, Krishna is talking about those yogis who are striving spiritually for Brahman realization, for liberation, okay, from birth and death, from samsara, okay, and this verse here is talking about those fruit of workers who study the Vedas for elevation to the higher planets. The mystic who passes away from this world during the smoke, the night, the fortnight of the waning moon or the six months, uh, when the sun passes to the south, reaches the moon planet, but again comes back. What's that mean? We've discussed this many times within this material world. If you attain the higher planetary systems, it's like moving to what? What's the best place now? Hawaii? Hawaii where? Paris. Paris? Uh, <laughs> uh, better than Paris. Paris weather is not that good. I don't you know. think so. Huh? No? Paris weather is good? I, I, no, I just don't think Paris is... Anyway, just imagine the most heavenly place on this planet. Okay? That's what the heavenly planets are within this universe. Like the most ideal, idyllic situation on this planet, if you moved there and you had unlimited wealth and you, you know, everything went your way. Well, there's heavenly planets. But it's temporary. Eventually, the bank account is depleted. You run through your pious activities that put you there in the higher planet. And when the bank account's empty, you can't pay the rent anymore. And what happens when you can't pay the rent? You're kicked out. Krishna says here, what's he saying? He says, again come back. Again come back to this earthly plane. Again descend to this platform. So it says, so when it says reaches the moon planet, meaning takes birth? Yes. For a lifetime or two. Not the moon planet that our modern scientists right. think that's up there that's void. We're talking about but a heavenly planet. Yeah. But takes birth there. Yes. Because when he says yes. reaches, he means takes birth. Yes. Resides there. Mm-hmm. Attains well, entrance. Why do they say moon then? Mm-hmm. Well, moon is one of the heavenly planets. Okay. But not this moon that we're referring to. Not this one. Of the... No, the moon that we see up there is yes. a heavenly planet. Okay. The way we see it. 
with our mechanical machines right. and with this right. these limited sentences okay. senses we have no perception of the beauty of living on the moon that the moon is a heavenly planet which is further away than the sun according to Vedic cosmology right, right. Yeah. figure that out yeah right okay so stay up there for 10,000 years and drink summer, right? Yes. 10,000 years. Now, how long is the 10,000 years to our, in our years? One, one of our days is, is, one of their days is equal to six months here. Mm. So, and then living there for 10,000 of their years. So, it, mm. I think it works out to... 1,800,000 of our years is there. Are they also aware this passage of time? Oh, yeah. <laughs> Certainly they're aware. Okay. But they don't have yeah. the pet. They don't have, they don't suffer the way we suffer on this plane. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's all kinds of descriptions in Bhagavatams, you know, of the residents of the higher planets, yeah. you know. I mean, everybody there is extremely gorgeous. There's no bodily odors. They smell gorgeous. I mean, everything there is perfect. But it's still within the material world. We're not talking about this transcendental plane. We're talking about going to Malibu or someplace and having a, you know, paid rent for a while with our piety and enjoying like anything. Being with the beautiful people. Yeah. And having all the mystic powers we can imagine. Mm-hmm. All the mystic opulences, they have that. Moving right along. According to Vedic opinion, there are two ways of passing from this world, one in light and one in darkness. When one passes in light, he does not come back. But when one passes in darkness, he returns. When, when Krishna speaks here about passing in light and not coming back, he's talking about attaining liberation. Okay? And that liberation is emerging into the Lord's external effulgence, Brahman. Practically speaking, reaching that is is so much beyond comprehension that Krishna can say not coming back. Because the period of liberation is... But eventually, in, in the Vedic literature, it's pointed out eventually, due to lack of personal contact due to lack of involvement even though someone attains that liberation that perfect yogic state of samadhi of of nirvana where there's no miseries still get bored (laughs) and it's interesting to note that Srila Jiva Goswami one of the primary uh, primary disciples of Lord Chaitanya pointed out that that, or was it Rupa? I I think it was Rupa Goswami, pointed out that the enjoyment of pure love for the Lord in devotional service, that unlimited ecstasy that one experiences in devotional practice, is millions and billions of times well, actually, the actual word in Sanskrit is beyond calculation. <laughs> okay. Beyond calculation, more enjoyable than liberation. 
Beyond calculation, it is more enjoyable than the liberation that's spoken of here that the, the perfect yogi attains by merging in the supreme energy of the Lord, Brahman. Liberation as the impersonalists aspire to. But if he, if he says he doesn't come back, then where is he then? If well, he's, he's merged into that spiritual energy. Yes. Does that mean he does not have a he relationship ha- he can, with Krishna? Well, everyone has a relationship with Krishna. Well, I know, but then what, when he says... He's he not does, acting on that platform. He's not acting in that loving relationship. He is simply merged in the Lord's transcendental spiritual energy. He's freed from this material energy. Right. From that location, he can either progress in devotional service, uh, examples being from Bhagavatam, the four Kamaras, were perfectly liberated. Brahman realized in that position they were fully satisfied. So much satisfied that they are the Kamaras. They never advanced in a material body past the age of five. That Kamara age is from birth until five. So they're referred to as the four Kamaras. So they, they wandered within this material world uh, wherever they wanted, spiritual world, they could go. They were free to go anywhere, and they were completely liberated from the the suffering of material existence. But once they smelled the Tulsi leaves that were offered to the lotus feet of the Supreme Lord, then they immediately were attracted, oh, to a higher relationship with Krishna, with God. Uh, similarly, Sukadev Goswami. He was completely liberated in the womb of his mother. So much so, he didn't want to come out. So he didn't for 12 years. He stayed in the womb of his mother. I don't want to take birth. Why would I want to take birth and suffer a material existence? But upon hearing of Krishna, because his, his father was explaining and it was a devotee was was uh, you know reading scripture he became attracted to Krishna but he was completely liberated <clears throat> prior to that also you'll note in Prabhupada's purports throughout Bhagavatam he often talks of the fact that a lot of these people that have are perfect yogis perfectly liberated they have no desire to enjoy materially they're fully spirit situated in their spiritual existence they fall down that they get attracted to performing philanthropic and altruistic activities, Prabhupada says. They open hospitals, they want to do good for mankind, and they fall down from that, from that platform of Brahman realization by becoming again involved in, in samsara, in material action and reaction. I'll rush on here. Uh, although the devotees know these two paths, O Arjuna, they are never bewildered. Therefore, they are always fixed in devotion. So we're studying here. We're studying. We're studying from Krishna's pure devotee, and we're learning about these paths. But what's the situation? Prabhupada is explaining to us. Therefore, we are fixed in devotion. Whether we we don't care, and Prabhupada explains in the purport to that verse at the end. If you read the verses, he explains the devotee. It doesn't matter. For a perfect lover of God, it doesn't matter whether you go in the daytime and the nighttime and the sun and the moon. It does, these things have no consequence to the verse tonight and the points I wanted to make. So 
Krishna goes on and he ends up with this text. A person who accepts the path of devotional service is not bereft of the results derived from studying the Vedas, performing sacrifice, Vedishu, Yajneshu, Tapeshu, Chaiva, and Vedeshu, studying the Vedas, Yajneshu, performing sacrifices, Tapeshu, performing austerities, Daneshu, giving in charity, Punya Falam, performing pious activities, doing good for other people, in other words. In fact, what is it? Ayeti, devotional service surpasses all of these activities. When we look in this world and we see what the common man considers to be religion, this is their, isn't this their religions? They, can, they are comprised of these items. Sacrifices, austerities, study of scripture, Vedeshu, giving in charity, performing pious activities, Deneshu, Punya Falam, or pursuing philosophical and fruitive activities. A lot of religion in the world is the fruitive activity kind. God, give me this day my daily bread. Uh, now you lay me down to sleep. <laughs> Keep my soul, you know. All the, it's, 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 it's good. It's good. Don't, let's not get it wrong. It's great to go to God. If you're going to go anywhere for whatever you need, going to God is the best place to go. And these things are great for the upliftment of mankind. But devotional service starts off where these pious, good, kind, right types of religious activities where they leave off. They go up to a certain point. My relationship with God ends when I get my money, when I'm put to sleep, when I get my food, whatever. I'm fulfilled then. I'm fulfilled. Or God sends me to heaven. Or he, or, he, or, or he protects my child or whatever I've prayed for and God gives me that. Well, good, you went to God and he gave you. Devotional service is takes off after that, where that leaves off. So that's what Krishna is talking about here. Simply by performing devotional service, he attains all these. So someone who works selflessly for the pleasure of Krishna in a loving relationship. He doesn't want for anything, is what Krishna's saying. It's what he's saying. He attains all these. He gets the results of all this other pious, good, great religious activity. He gets all these. And at the end, not only does he get all the good stuff that all the other religions give, and at the end, he reaches the supreme eternal abode. Wow. Devotional service, it's like, why would you want to go anywhere else? Huh? Why would we want to take to any other practice? But it's so, people are, are so dull that instead they, they I, I, 
I'm reading, actually Archie and I both are reading Bhaktivinoda Thakur. If you want to talk about Bhaktivinoda Thakur, Bhaktivinoda is uh, the spiritual master, uh, is the father of Bhaktisiddhanta Saraswati, uh, Saraswati, who is the spiritual master of Srila Prabhupada. And Bhaktivinoda is is on such a non-sectarian platform of instilling Vaishnav knowledge to uplift humanity, it is amazing. He is the... He's like the supreme non-sectarian. He cuts through all the boundaries and he explains in his literatures and his writings the, this exact verse right here, in detail, time and time again. Forget all this sect. As long as you have sectarian religion, these are just customs. It's basically the way he looks at it. These are social customs and traditions that are put forth to elevate people according to their, according to time, place, and circumstance. They really have no place when it comes to developing your loving relationship with Krishna, with the Supreme Lord. As I said, devotional service takes off where all these others leave off. And he says, as long as we are attached to my religion, to my customs, and my customs are the right customs, and your customs are the wrong customs, so therefore your religion's wrong and my God's right and your God's... We can see throughout the world all these different religious sects in all these different cultures from all these different societies of mankind. And what do they, what do, they do? They simply fight with each other. They fight over, I want this land. No, I want this land. This is my holy place. Nope, that's my holy place. Get out of, you know, look at this. Or my religion is better than you, or I'm a Christian and therefore the Mohammedans and then there's the Hindus and the, the Jews. I mean, where's it end? These are, are simply, although they're, they're fine to, to satisfy mankind in their religion, when we look to true spirituality, we must look to the instructions given by the pure devotees of the Lord. And read this purport again and again because this is so very important. What does Prabhupada say in the purport? You must learn about true spiritual life from someone who's already a perfect lover of God, a pure devotee. You can only understand this 7th and 8th chapter of Bhagavad Gita in the company of devotees. You're not going to be able to understand how to love God perfectly unless you come in contact. And as Prabhupada says in his introduction to Bhagavad Gita, so many translations of Bhagavad Gita have been rendered in English, but no one became Krishna's devotee. Now I am giving the pure devotional service coming purely from Krishna's pure devotee and now devotees are coming. This verse that we chanted tonight 
is the summation of the 7th and 8th eighth chapter. Now we're into the heart of Bhagavad Gita. This is the mystery, as Prabhupada points out in the purport of the verse I read tonight. This is the real heart and mystery of spiritual life. And it can only be understood coming from Krishna's pure devotees. Otherwise, we're simply using our mental speculation or approaching uh, the science of the spirit uh, without the help of pure disciplic succession and Krishna's pure devotees. Without that assistance, we'll not understand. It will become, it will remain a mystery. I've gone over as usual. I'm sorry. Are there any questions? Yes, ma'am. Your interpretation in a devotional service. Devotional service. The the definition of devotional service is given by Rupa Goswami, who's one of the predecessor acharyas or teachers of pure devotional service. Is Anyabilasita sunyam jarma jana karma yanavritam anu koyena krishna anu silanam bhaktir uttama. Unmotivated and uninterrupted service to the Supreme Lord. Very high standard. Unmotivated, uninterrupted. But you could look to a saint like Lord Jesus Christ, his lifestyle. That's what we're taught. Pure devotional service. No motivation except for the well-being of humanity at that point in time. Uh, Unmotivated, uninterrupted. He didn't have any other activity in his life except preaching the gospel of of, uh, the Supreme Lord, did he? So simply all saintly people who live a life on that standard and Vedic scripture gives a lot of other details about their particular, how, you, how we can recognize them. That's the standard that of pure devotional service. Now there's other devotional service that's not pure, as we touched upon this evening. There's other, well, any approach, anything that we do when we approach the Supreme Lord for, for benefit is in and of itself devotional service. But pure devotional service is pure. Yes, ma'am. I have a feeling that she might also be asking what forms do those take? Like, is that is that part of your question? Like, what like devotional service? Like, what is the form or forms? No, I'm hoping that there's not a form. There are specific <laughs> ways. Well, there's ways to come to the platform of pure devotional service. Once the heart becomes purely, purely completely purified what you are what you hope is certainly there but but the consciousness must be cleansed and in order to completely cleanse the consciousness there are practices practices that we need to employ and the and the pure devotees give us those practices that will completely purify our existence once the, once the existence is purified then we rise above all the rules and regulations. So there's the platform of sadhana, where there's practice, and we have to follow that practice to purify ourselves. And above practice, there's actually three stages of devotional life. 
broad stages, the broad brush strokes that Rupa Goswami gives the same saint that we discussed earlier. Uh, devotional service in practice, devotional service in ecstasy. That's when like all the dirt's gone and you're really feeling your true spiritual love is starting to blossom. Devotional service in ecstasy and then devotional service in pure love of Godhead. Once you reach the platform of devotional service in pure love of Godhead, then all the other all the other things fall away. But the amazing thing is the saintly people that preach devotional service, they still execute perfect sadhana or practice for our benefit. As Krishna says in Bhagavad Gita, whatever a great man does, the common men will follow that. So they still, they don't go out and murder people, they don't rape people, you know, there's certain things that you won't find them in the local bar, you know, but they could, they would be so pure that they could be there. Okay. So, uh, in text 22, mm-hmm. greater than all is attainable by unalloyed devotion. Unalloyed. Right. So that's what you're expressing and articulating unmotivated and what was the other one unmotivated uninterrupted uninterrupted that would be right and also an alloy that's an alloy a mixture right just like gold we want to we want to keep the fire on to purify our existence so there's no no dirt right so becoming unalloyed would be engaging in the sadhana of the practice the ecstasy the unalloyed practice, right. And if we remember back to Srila Rupa Goswami's definition of the different progressions of devotional life, Natra, Shraddha, Tata, Sadhu, Sangotha, Bhajana, Kriya, Tato, Nartha, Nivriti, Shat, Tato, Nista, Ruchis, Tata, Atha, Saktis, Tato, Bhavas. So basically, all those progressions. Yeah. You you attach you you have some faith. Right. Let me have some faith. Once we have some faith, that faith God will actually put us in touch with spiritual people, right. sadhus. Right. The sadhus will give you bhajana kriya. Perform these activities: chant Hare Krishna, worship the deity, eat prasadam, give up these things. No more illicit sex. No meat eating. No intoxication. No gambling. We have some some practice there. Bhajana kriya. Bhajana kriya. What's the result? After Bhajanakriya, Anartha, Nivriti. The alloys, the Anarthas, the stains, the bad habits, they wash away. Then what is there? There's the pure engagement in devotional life without cheating. In the beginning of our devotional practice, we're conditioned to cheat in this material world. We have to rise beyond that. So therefore we have to follow those practices that cleanse our heart. We have to take up the good practices. We have to give up the bad practices in life and cleanse ourselves. So then we become an unalloyed. Then nista. Nista, we become steady in our service to God. There's nothing can break, break our resolve because our faith is firm. We know this is real. In the beginning, our faith is soft and pallid. We don't know. Is there really God or is there not? Or 
is he really going to take care of me? And there'll come a point when, when there'll be no question whatsoever. <laughs> Complete conviction. That platform of Nista followed by Ruchi and Ace, we start tasting our spiritual life. All the pleasures here become inconsequential at that stage. That spiritual rapture really starts to kick in. A Shakti, we start to actually realize Krishna's personality. Then Baba. He is so unimaginably fantastic as Krishna as what's Prabhupada say at the end of the purport? Let's just read that. We'll end on that fat that final thing. Which The last the very end of the eighth chapter. In the advanced stage one falls completely in love with Krishna. What's that mean to fall completely in love? Pure devotee. No mixture. No alloy as completely in love with Krishna. This highest perfectional stage of life enables the devotee to be transferred to Krishna's abode. Only when we're at that platform where we fall completely in love with Krishna, then we can go to Krishna. As long as there's some tinge, then... Krishna has to, he gives us procedure how to, how to work through that.